Amen. Well, good morning to you. I invite you to take up your Bibles and meet me in Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be just on two verses today. Uh, we're going to work just through verse 32 and 33. If you're new here, uh, my name is Mike Kesarowski. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and it really is a privilege to share this morning with you. Um, I do love new people, and so if we have not had the chance yet to meet, I would invite you to join me up front after service so that you'll have the opportunity to introduce yourself uh, to me. Uh, I'd love to meet you. If you're just joining us together as a uh, church family, we have been working through the book of Acts. This book was written by a man named Luke and is the story of that first body of believers after Jesus ascended into heaven. If you will, it's the narrative of how the message of Jesus spread throughout the world through that first community of believers. Now, you'll notice something peculiar about the first five chapters of Acts, and it's that Luke sort of pans in to specific instances that are happening to that first community, and then every once in a while, he'll pan out uh, to show a general, broader look at uh, this community as a whole. If you will, what I mean by that is imagine that you're flying a drone with a camera on it. There are moments as you're flying this drone that you will want to go up. The drone elevates and gets a wide-angle shot of the scenery around it. It's just a broad overview of the scenery. But every once in a while, you want to bring the drone down low. And as you bring the drone down low, the, the visual, the scene actually shrinks. And you see a very specific part of that scenery in greater detail. Uh, what Luke is doing in these first five chapters is actually going back and forth. In verse 32 and 33, we find that he actually brings the drone up to give us a general look uh, of this community and what they were like. And then next week, we'll find that he's going to bring the drone right back in and sh- show us a specific instance of what this general uh, characterization looked like. And so uh, with that in mind, uh, let's turn to God's word and see what he would have to say to us this morning, just starting in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. It says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we devote the next several minutes of our time to your word, we would ask that your spirit, uh, that we would know his presence in our midst, and that our minds would be convicted and melted and molded and conformed to who Christ is. Father, and I pray that we are molded to who Jesus is, not just individually, but also corporately as a body of believers, Father. I pray that we would become like Jesus so that we may be able to tell the world about Jesus. We're thankful, Father, for how you've worked in us, and we ask that you continue to do that this morning. And in your holy name I pray, amen. Imagine with me, if you will, that when you walked into the building today, our lovely greeters gave you a piece of string and asked you to tie the end of that string onto your wrist. 
And then imagine, if, if you will, hypothetically, that this string extends uh, eternally, indefinitely. There is no other end to this string. You've got one end tied to your wrist, and the other end just goes on and on and on. So essentially what would happen if you were to do this is as you walk about this morning, the string is essentially leaving a trail behind you of everywhere you've been. As you go and grab your coffee, the string follows your path. As you interacted and mingled with people in the hallway, the string followed your path. And even as you come and sit down in the worship center and then get up and go again, the string follows your path. Now, if we did this for everyone, theoretically, as we all walked about and interacted, the strings would begin to lay over each other. They, they would actually begin to, to, to intertwine. And by the end of the morning, everyone would leave and we would look around the building and we would come to find that we actually have quite a tangled, knotted, jumble mess in the hallways because all the strings are going all kinds of different directions. For our limited perspective, it looks like a mess and it looks scrambled and it feels jumbled. However, if you look at that from God's perspective, Scripture tells us actually that God takes that jumbled, knotted, tangled mess and from it, he actually creates this beautiful, unified tapestry that he actually then goes on and puts on display. He shows it off. He takes each thread as it weaves into one another and he creates this beautiful creation. Luke, as he pulls the drone up, we get this picture of what this first community of believers looked like as a whole. We read in verse 32 that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. We see that this community had unity, a togetherness among them, and not just a unity among a few of those who believed in Jesus, but a unity among all of them. Not just the ones that looked the same or sounded the same, but all of them. And to this point, there's thousands who are being described as unified as one heart and soul. This unity was deeper than just a common affiliation to the church. It was comprehensive. John Wesley says that their loves, their passions, their hopes were joined together as one, as if there was one spirit about them. And this comes not merely just from a friendship with each other, but they share a common purpose. They share a common goal, as if they existed for the same reason and lived their life for the same goal. And this description that Luke gives us of unity that characterized that first body of believers is impressive. Because here's the problem when you begin sticking a bunch of people together in a group. We're all sinful. We're all imperfect. When you stick a bunch of imperfect people in the room, let alone a group of thousands, who all have their different opinions 
and all have their different convictions and all have their different thoughts, you are just destined to find conflict at worst and at best disagreement. There's not a single person in this room that will agree 100% with another person in this room of what church should be and what our churches look like and how we should function as a church. And this is why such deep unity described in Acts chapter 4 is so hard to maintain. One commentator that I was reading in preparation for this morning spoke about how as believers... Christian fellowship, our, our high, our standards of Christian fellowship should be extremely high. The problem with this though is that if our standards of Christian fellowship are high, consequently, the pain of disappointment will also be high when those expectations aren't met. He, and so he wrote that in our culture and in our context, We actually tend to lower our standards from what we expect out of a Christian community because it's just too painful to try and be unified the way that they were unified in Acts chapter 4. Many people in this room know the pain of being hurt by the church and the members that make up the church. I know I have. You sit there with your pain. And you read Acts 4.32 and you say, that's nice, but my experience conveys a much different understanding of the church. My experience conveys something else altogether. To, To me, the church doesn't feel like one heart or one soul. It actually feels quite like the opposite. It feels hostile. When we experience this kind of pain from the church and the people in the church, we may be tempted to just chuck it all and say, we don't, we don't need the church. And then we become like this lone wolf Christian with no strings attached. If I could go back to the initial illustration, it would be like walking in the door and the greeter offering you the string and saying, no thanks, I don't, I don't really want a string because I don't want to be a part of this tangled mess. And I don't want to be a part of the knots. And I don't want to be part of this, this interweaving. So, so no thanks. I'm frankly, I'm here to get what I need, do my thing, and then get out. I don't care to intermingle with other believers, and I don't want to be a part of such tangled mess when the morning is over. In fact, to avoid being attached, I'm just going to jump from church to church, actually. Right? I, 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 and when one church begins getting too close to my stuff, then it's time to move on. Or you could sit there and say, well, it's a personal relationship with Jesus, right? Who, who needs the church anyway? I don't need to be in a church or in a community to be a Christian, right? The problem with this mentality is that Scripture paints a much different picture of the body of believers, Take a look at just one example of this in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 
All scripture screams to the togetherness, the oneness of all believers, all those who believe in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote this passage in 1 Corinthians, and he goes on to explain in this chapter that the, that we are compared to a body with many parts. As some people are noses, and some people are hands, and some people are feet, and if we're real honest, some people are armpits, right? And all of those parts are useful, but none of them can truly function without being a part of the body. None of them can live out their God-given potential and purpose removed from the body. What Paul is getting at is that you cannot properly function as a believer, as God intended, as it was designed, without being involved and connected to the body of Christ. And so herein lies the problem. Scripture tells us that we are a part of the same body, yet we're all still sinners. We're all still imperfect. And so there is so much potential for disunity. So how do we make this work? How can we in good conscience say that we, like those first believers in Acts 4, are of one heart and one soul? And this is where a solid understanding of the biblical basis for unity comes into play. It's critical to know the foundation of this group of believers' unity. And it's right there in plain sight in verse 32. You'll notice that the first, that, that verse doesn't say that the full number of those who were rich were of this one heart and soul. It's not the full number of those that were the same age are of one heart and soul. It's not even the full number of those who were from a certain racial background that were a one heart and soul. No, the verse says it right there. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The foundation of their unity, their oneness, is the gospel, is the message of Jesus. They were one heart and soul because they were believers. And so I'm going to make the claim that our unity with other believers ultimately begins at conversion. It begins when somebody becomes a believer. And to support that claim, I want to draw your attention to John chapter 17, verses 20 through 21. We call this the high priestly prayer. This is a prayer that Jesus said the night before he would be crucified. And there's three different groups that he prays for, three different people that he prays for in this prayer, in John 17. And to catch you up before we read these verses, the first thing that Jesus prays for is himself. He's asking his father, would you glorify me as what I'm about to do? As I go through with being crucified, father, would you glorify me? Right? And then he prays for his disciples, his, his local disciples, the, the ones that have been walking with him for the past three years. He's, he's asking God to bless them essentially as they go out and share this message about Jesus. And then something really cool happens. After he prays for his disciples, Jesus transitions in verse 20 and he begins to pray for all believers everywhere at all times. 
If you come here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again, Jesus prayed for you in this verse. And listen to what he says. What is the first thing that he prays for us as a body of believers? Take a look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, he's referring to his disciples as these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. You'll notice in this verse that Jesus is actually talking about three different unities. First, he's speaking about unity among all believers. He's praying that we would be unified as a body of believers. And then he speaks to the unity that he has with the Father. It's the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They have been perfectly unified for all eternity. And then he speaks of a third unity that's kind of hard to miss, but he says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, just as the Trinity is unified, that they also may be in us. This third unity that he's talking about is our union with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, there are literally hundreds of references to believers' union in Christ and through Christ. We could take all morning just reading those. And this is what happens at conversion. In our sinful state, we rejected Jesus. We wanted him off the throne of our life. We didn't want anything to do with him. But one day, Jesus came calling. And he called out to us to, in order to draw us in. He, he initiated that, that salvation call. And we're told in scripture that when we hear his voice, that we're to repent of our sinful attitude towards Jesus and turn to him. And when we turn to him, we are reconciled to him. We were at enmity with him. We were against him. Uh, and now we are reconciled to him. Our relationship, if you will, is restored. Thus we become unified with him. But here's the strange truth that scripture also teaches and that Jesus, uh, Jesus' prayer teaches. That while I was redeemed and restored and reconciled vertically, with God, at conversion, I am also redeemed, restored, and reconciled horizontally with other beings, with other humans. Because when sin entered the world, not only did it break off my relationship with God, but it also breaks off my relationship with you and you with, with me. You see this if you go all the way back to Genesis. Right In Genesis, we read the story about sin entering into the world through Adam and Eve. And they were banished from the garden. It represented their relationship with God. For Adam and Eve, their relationship with God vertically was cut off because of sin. And what's the very next story? What's the next result of sin? It's the story of their son, Cain, who murdered their other son, Abel. Not only is our relationship with God broken at sin, but our relationship with each other is broken at sin. And so we need to be redeemed, not just with God, but also with other, with each other. 
I love what one author writes about this. Uh, He says, the act of trying to shove God off the throne is by its very nature an act of trying to place ourselves on it. And we're not about to let some other human being, for that matter, take it from us. Not a chance. It's every man for himself. And so when Jesus goes to the cross and takes back the throne that he always had and redeems all those who believe in him, not only are we unified with Christ, but we are also unified with each other. This reveals, as one commentator says, that the Christian fellowship is not merely a community of friends, but an enterprise of divine character. An enterprise of divine character. And so from a technical standpoint, to be called believer, by its very definition, means that there is no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. It does not exist. Mark Dever, a pastor from Washington, D.C., writes that it's impossible to define the label Christian from a biblical standpoint without ending up in a conversation about the church. He explains it a little bit further in an illustration that's helpful. The body of Christ is often referred to as a family. And scripture teaches that we were outside of that family and when we were reconciled to God, we were adopted into that family through Christ. And so Mark Dever brings this metaphor to life. He explains that you're an orphan and as an orphan, you don't adopt parents, they adopt you. Listen to what he says. If your adoptive parents are named Smith, guess what? You now attend the Smith family dinners with the parents and all the children. You share a bedroom at night with the Smith siblings. When the teacher at school calls out attendance and says, Smith, you raise your hand just like your older brother did before you and just like your younger sister will do after you. And you do this not because you decided to play the role of Smith, but because someone went to the orphanage and said, you will be a smith. On that day, you become a child of someone and siblings of others. Only your name's not Smith. It's Christian, named after the one through whom you were adopted and bought, Christ Jesus. Now you're a part of the whole family of God. If you are a believer you are brought into the family of God whether you want to or not. I am your brother whether you want me or not. Just like you don't get to pick and choose who is in your blood family, you don't get to pick and choose who is in your Christian family that was bought with the blood of Jesus. If you are a believer, by definition, you are unified. And so what scripture encourages us with and what Acts 4 verse 32 displays is that if you are truly regenerated, if you have truly been given a new heart, if you are truly a believer, if you are truly reconciled with Jesus, then it should be the desire of your heart to follow suit and embrace the unity that you already have with other believers on paper. Basically, Scripture is saying you are unified institutionally, and so now it's time to act like it organically. 
For example, if a pastor conducts a wedding, they pronounce the bride and groom as husband and wife. They are not married until that pronouncement, but as soon as that pronouncement is made, they are legally bound. On paper, they are married. Institutionally, they are married. But what would happen at a wedding? If as a pastor, I pronounce the bride and groom husband and wife, and then when they leave the building, they get in two separate cars, they drive in two separate directions, and they never see or talk to each other ever again. Are they still married? Yes. On paper, they are. But boy, they don't act like it organically. No, when we marry people, we pronounce them husband and wife. Institutionally, they are married. And then organically, they go on and participate in a different type of relationship, mentally, emotionally, and physically. And so while there may be no such thing as a lone wolf Christian, while institutionally you are unified, we have a glaring problem of disunity and the issue of our own sin or selfishness disrupting any kind of organic unity that drives us and tempts us to attempt to be this lone wolf. How do we combat that? In order to be organically unified, we must remember that the unity, the foundation, the cornerstone of the oneness for those first believers was found in the person of Christ himself. And so if I individually do my part to be like Christ, to act like Christ, to be conformed to Christ, and you as an individual strive to do the same thing, unity will come much easier than you think. A.W. Tozer has a beautiful illustration to this. Imagine that you are in a magnificent concert hall. And on the stage are 100 of the most gorgeous grand pianos you have ever seen. Tozer makes the point that if you tune every one of those pianos to the same tuning fork, all 100 pianos will automatically be tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but by another standard, a higher standard, a greater standard. Tozer goes on to say that in the same way, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be. I fear that too many times in the local church, we tune ourselves to certain preachers, a preaching style, a music preference, an age group. When enough individuals tune themselves to other things, the things that we're naturally going to disagree on, it produces disunity. And so don't tune yourself to a preacher or a style or even a specific program. Tune yourself to Jesus and you will find yourself unified with the rest of his body. There is no greater tie 
that bonds us than the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are not bound together in this room because we like the same kind of music or because we look the same or because we act the same or because we're involved in the same ministries. No, we are bound by Jesus. Which as a side note is why diversity within the local church is so important. Diversity speaks to the strength of our tie in Jesus. We see that Jesus has the power and the capability to bind someone like me, who's a young white guy who grew up in a white suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, to somebody completely different than me. An older woman from South Korea who grew up in an urban city where the world would look at the two of us and tell us that we virtually have nothing in common. We can proudly proclaim that this is the strength of the unity that we have in Christ. And so what I, what I really hope for as a church, for us locally here at FAC, is what we're talking about conforming to Jesus is a term that we call sanctification. Sanctification just means to be set apart. And in the Christian context, it means that the, the body of believers is being set apart from the world. We're being taken away from the world and we are being made to look like Jesus, to be conformed to Jesus. Often I'll pray for our church, two simple prayers. Lord, may the lost be saved today and would the saved be sanctified? When it comes down to it, those are the two things that I want the most out of our times on Sunday morning. One of the things, though, is that whenever we talk about sanctification, our minds seem to steer towards this individual or personal sanctification, what's happening for me individually. But sanctification isn't just a process of you individually becoming more like Jesus, but it can also apply at a community level. A group of believers can be sanctified as a group. A community can be made to look like Jesus. This is one of the roles of the local church, to look like Jesus. My hope is that FAC would be the outline of Christ in a very lost world. And we know from sanctification that there will always be fruit. There will always be evidence of a regenerated heart. A heart that comes alive, not just in the individual, but a heart that comes alive in a community of believers will always show signs of life, fruit. And we see this happen in Acts uh, chapter 4, that there is fruit for this community in verse 32. There's a cause and an effect in play. The cause... They were in Christ and thus unified with one another, one heart and soul. And the effect of such unity was that they viewed their possessions much differently than they once did. All of a sudden, they're no longer possessive of their stuff because they put the needs of the body ahead of their own individual needs. Their attitude is what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. And we'll get into this more next week. But the main point that I want to drive home to you this morning is that their mutual care for one another is merely an outpouring of their unity. Their mutual care is just evidence that they have been 
authentically unified with Christ and authentically unified with each other. Their mutual care is just a physical representation of being one heart and one soul. It's their unity on display. Now we have to understand though that this sharing of goods, this mutual care was not actually their end goal. That wasn't their purpose. That's not what they were necessarily striving for, but rather it was just a byproduct of their mission. It was something that just sort of happened as a result of their unity. Having everything in common was not their goal. If taking care of each other is merely a byproduct of our unity, though, then what is the main goal? What are they striving for? And the answer is in verse 33. Let me read it again. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. When you read this last chunk of chapter 4 as a whole, verse 33 seems very out of place. Because it seems like the point of this section is that everybody took care of each other and that they were unified and this unity led them to care for one another's needs. And then all of a sudden, right in the middle of the passage, there's this verse about the apostles giving their testimonies to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You read this and you say, what on earth does having everything in common have anything to do with the apostles sharing the gospel? It seems so out of place. Why would Luke include this? Well, I think this is very intentional. Because what this verse shows us is that the gospel, the message of Jesus rising from the dead, actually comes full circle. Let's revisit real quick Jesus' prayer in John 17 because I have a confession to make. I didn't read you the full verse from the passage earlier. I held back the punchline. Take a look at it again. John 17, verse 20 through 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe you have sent me. Christian unity is a testimony of the gospel at work. God uses our unity to make his name known and make it great. So if you want the main idea of this, of these two verses that we've shared and what scripture teaches about unity, what this community acts in acts has put on display is that we are unified by the gospel for the sake of the gospel. We are unified by the gospel for the sake of the gospel. Full circle. There's a progression that takes place with our, that we've seen in our time this morning, right? There's a progression in these first two verses in Acts that we've looked at. We start with the gospel, right? The message that Jesus Christ came and died and reconciled us to, to him. And then the gospel produces unity of believers. And then the unity of believers produces a different view of their possessions. And a different view of their possessions produce mutual care. And then mutual care produces what? A testimony for the gospel. Back to square one. Full circle.
Because Jesus is the beginning and end of all things. In light of everything going on in Washington right now, it's not hard to see how deeply divided our country is. In a divided world that is experiencing this colossal chasm of division, the universal body of believers is unified through Christ, so let's act like it. I, I want you to know that I want to hear your opinions and I want to hear your heart. And I want you to hear my opinions and I want you to hear my heart. But I pray that while we still may disagree on a number of things, as individuals, can we please embrace the spirit of gospel unity? Because the divided world is looking on. The divided world is looking at us, trying to find the cracks, trying to find the foothold to tear us apart. We should be willing to compromise on non-essentials, not just for the greater good of the community, but more importantly, for the greater good of our mission. Because what kind of testimony is that? How do we make the gospel of Jesus Christ look if I can't put petty things behind me? That makes our bond in Jesus look so weak. And so let's let the ties of our unity in the gospel be stronger than our ties to anything else. Strong enough to withstand the sword of division so that we can in good conscience stand and proclaim that the unity that we find in Christ is real and all those who believe in him can experience what it means to be in Jesus. I want to finish our time today reading a quick excerpt from Mark Dever because he puts it in words that I can't. He writes, do you see it? It's right there, right in the midst of a group of sinners who have committed to loving one another. That is the gospel displayed. The church gives a visual presentation of the gospel when we forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us when we commit to one another as Christ has committed to us, and when we lay down our lives for one another as Christ laid down his life for us. Together, we can display the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that we just can't by ourselves. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much First of all, for what your word tells us about the unity uh, that you have with your son and with your spirit. What a wonderful example it is, Father, that Christ submitted to your will. He laid aside his, his own feelings on the matter and went to the Christ obediently in order to submit to you. We thank you uh, for the unity that you have within the testimony. Father, we thank you for the unity uh, that we have in you as believers. 
Lord, that you did reconcile us through Christ. And you brought us into your family while you could have turned us away, Father. You adopted us and sat us down at the table. I also praise you, Father, as messy as this gets, for the unity among believers. I pray that we would lay our sin aside, our selfishness aside, so that the world may know who you are based on what you have bound together among believers. And with that, Father, I praise you that even this very day, there are believers across the entire world meeting and glorifying you and worshiping you, Lord. Even in Erie, Lord, I I lift up our neighboring churches. There's so many, but even just to pray for a few, Lord, I thank you for Elevate. And I pray for them that that they would be a strong representation for your gospel. I, I lift up Mill Creek Community Church to you, Father. And I thank you for the bond that we have to them. I thank you, Father, for Grace Church. I lift up, Lord, their own mission that the kingdom would be advanced through them, Lord. I pray for our other, even Alliance churches that are are bound very close together, Lord. I think about Gerard Alliance, and I think about Flight Path, and I think about East Lake Road Alliance, Father. Would you bring a spirit of unity among them as well, Father? And would they move to advance your kingdom and make Jesus' name known? We praise you, Father, for what you've done in us and in our hearts. Would you tie us closely? I lift up our offering to you as we collect it. Lord, let this be just the fruit, the byproduct of how unified we are, pointing towards one mission and pulling our resources so that Erie may be transformed by introducing people to a transformational relationship with Jesus. We praise you, Father. Would you be with us and go before us as we physically separate uh, for the week, Father? Would we still be together in spirit and in heart? And in your holy name I pray, amen.